Okay. Condense, circle, time, sun on the horizon. I call with all my heart, answer me, O Lord, and I will obey your decrees. I call out to you, save me, and I will keep your statutes. I rise before dawn, dawn and cry for help. I put my hope in your word. My eyes stay open through the watches of the night, that I might meditate on your promises. Hear my voice in accordance with your love. Preserve my life, O Lord, according to your laws. Those who devise wicked schemes are near, but they are far from the law. Mm. Yet you are near. All your commands are true. Long ago I learned from your statutes that you established them. Good stuff. Okay, let's see. I'm going to see if we have, uh, today is July, July 10th. Okay. 11th. 11th. Okay. July 11th. I don't know. One day is the same to me. Okay. Well, it would help if I got in the right month. I'm going through June, so that doesn't help. Let's see here. July. You said it's the 11th. Give me one second here. 9, 8, 10. Okay. Here we are. In Tencent, China, in 1902, a baby was born to Scottish missionaries James and Mary Liddell. They named him Eric. It's about the same time my grandmother was born in China as well. Yeah, she was born to a, a, a medical missionary from the Episcopal denomination. He was the first person to write a book on uh, the diseases unique to China. This so. is an Olympian then. What's Liddell? that? Yes. Liddell, uh, Liddell, that's correct. When Eric was four, I don't know if it's the same Liddell, though. Uh, his father read in the newspaper how a Scotsman, Wyndham Halswell, had won second place in the, yes, must be the 400-meter race in the Olympics, the first Scot ever to win an Olympic medal in track. When his father tried to explain this to Eric and his older brother, Eric asked whether that meant that no Scotsman had ever finished first. The answer was yes. Eric's parents took him and his older brother to a boarding school for sons of missionaries in England, and they returned to China. At school, both boys excelled in rugby, cricket, and track. Eric set a school record of 10.2 uh, seconds in the 100-meter dash. Eric attended the University of Edinburgh, where he continued to excel in track. He quickly emerged as the fastest sprinter in Scotland and became a national hero. Does, you, do you remember the movie that was uh, yeah, uh, Chariots? Chariot that's right, Chariots of Fire. Uh, anybody remember who did the music for that? Van Jealous. Okay, very good. You were close. Um, in college, his older brother was active with the other Christian college students and holding evangelistic meetings throughout Scotland. Evangel evangelistic service. The experience stirred Eric's soul. It gave him a desire to share the gospel with whomever would listen. But over the next two years, he spoke to thousands throughout the British Isles, men and women who came to hear the famous athlete, but who returned to hear his message of salvation. Yet newspapers questioned Eric's commitment to, be, to running since he was spending so much time only preaching. The Olympics were to be held in Paris in 1924, and the hopes of England were now pinned on the young Scott as the nation's champion sprinter. Eric's best event was the 100-meter dash, but when the schedule for the Olympic races was published, the first heats for the 100 meters were on a Sunday. Eric held the conviction that only that he was never to race on Sunday and refused to do so. The English Olympic Committee tried to have the date for the first heats changed, but to no avail. As a result, Eric was entered in the 200 and 400-meter races, um, events in which he was not at all a dominant figure as the 100 meters. The British press attacked him mercilessly. 
a traitor to Scottish sporting and to all that Wyndham Halswell stood for, announced one newspaper. On the Sunday of the 100-meter trial in Paris, Eric preached in the Scots Kirk, the Scottish Presbyterian Church in Paris. In the 100-meter trials, Harold Abrams was the one English sprinter to qualify for the finals the next day. Harold Abrams won the 100-meter race, the first British runner to win a gold medal in the Olympics. Eric saw that this was just part of God's plan. On Wednesday, Eric finished second in the 200-meter dash, the first Scott to win a medal in the 200 meters. But there was still one race to go. Eric qualified on Thursday for the 400-meter finals, but he was far from being the favorite. The finals were held on Friday, July 11, 1924. As he prepared to go to the stadium, the team Masur handed Eric a small folded piece of paper. It read, He that honors me, I will honor. Quoting 1 Samuel 2.30, Eric Liddell won the 400-meter race, setting a new world record of 47.6 seconds. He was the first Scott to win Olympic gold in track. The next year, Eric Liddell returned to China as a missionary and during World War II died in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. Chariots of Fire, there it is, the movie about his athletic career, won the Academy Award for Best Picture in 1981. A reflection, Eric Liddell stood up for his conviction even though all England opposed him. Have you ever had to take a public stand for your convictions? When you take a stand for God, you are never alone. Joshua 1.5 says, No one will be able to stand their ground against you as long as you live. For I will be with you as I was with Moses. I will not fail you or abandon you. And having said that, I admire his convictions, and the Lord did honor him because he honored the Lord. But uh, Paul is pretty clear in... Um, Romans 14, where is that? Let me see if I can find that uh, really quickly here. He says, um, uh, brethren Christ, and let's see here. He says, um, uh, where does he say that? It's in Romans 14, and he speaks about uh, one day esteems one day uh, above the rest, and uh, one esteems every day the same. Let each one of you be convinced in his own mind. What would help if I was in Romans 14? I'm looking in Romans 15, something I do all the time. Verse 6, he who observes the day, observes it. Oh, let me start in verse 5. One person esteems one day above another, which he did. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. And he was. Uh, he who observes the day, observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. And it goes on from there. But that's just speaking of the days of the week. And that's confirmed in Colossians uh, 2. 16 and 17, it's confirmed elsewhere that uh, we do not observe a Sabbath. Christ, Hebrews 4, 3, is our Sabbath rest. But I admire his convictions, and he did the right thing because he was convinced in his mind, as Paul says. So, uh, I don't know. It just says somebody did. But if you watch the movie, maybe you could tell me because I didn't. I've never seen it. I saw it when I was Oh, there you go. So like, See, like, why would he do that? Yeah, why would he do that? Exactly. A um, couple prayer requests. Let's see here. Blake wants to know, Blake who comes here when he can, he's always in pain. He wants to know if anybody knows a good pain doctor in Sarasota. So if you do, please let me know. Um, I can scratch him off the list, but I'll still uh, acknowledge him as John Holler, who came and did a prophecy update for us, got cellulitis in his face, which is normally something on your legs, which is really painful. And he looks now like he's got one of those uh, masks from, uh, uh, you know, the Venice Theater where they put on those funny masks and it looks like it. And so uh, he, he is very welcome to people posting funny things about his sickness on the uh, 
on Facebook, but he he's better. So we don't need to pray for him other than that he will continue to get better. And then uh, Mike in California has a cancerous growth on his liver. And uh, so we need to add him into our prayers. And then I got this in the email this morning and she said, I can read this, so I shall. Hello, dear Charlie and fellow believers, my widowed daughter, her husband was abusive and wicked. Uh, he found a wonderful, she has found a wonderful, new man and is now engaged. It was found recently that he has colon cancer and is going to have surgery tomorrow, which is today. Uh, please pray all goes well and it is smaller than they thought. Also, he won't have to have chemo or radiation. Of course, I'm asking for a miracle. Whatever happens, I pray that they can be together for many years and that the Lord gets us out of here soon. Also, he is Jewish, but he accepted Christ as his Savior. We have been praying for that. Praise Jesus. Also, an unspoken request regarding her and one of my sons. That's all she said about that. Thank you. And I know you have heard this. Um, I won't say the rest. She just gave the church uh, and you know some uh, compliments about the uh, sermons and about things like that. So uh, she did. I can read this. So she says, I've been listening and I'm almost 83 now. So I listen sometimes till 2.30 in the morning. She's listened to almost every sermon that we have done now. So pretty wonderful. We'll add all these into our prayers right now, and then we'll get started. Can we help you, ma'am? <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance to come into your presence and to uh, acknowledge you first and foremost as our great Savior and our wonderful Lord. And you have heard what we've uh, brought forward, forward to you for prayer requests, and uh, we also could add in Robin, who is healing from her surgery. We thank you she came through that very well. And we also thank you that uh, John Holler is doing better, and uh, we would pray that he would continue to do so. And the other prayer requests, the cancers and the um, uh, pain, hopefully finding a doctor, we would pray that you would be with these people and help them to meet those needs and even exceed them so that they can turn around and know that it was from your glorious hand of healing and that uh, they can then praise you for what has happened. We pray that, Lord. But whatever happens, we leave it in your capable hands, knowing that all things happen according to your will. And so, Lord, we just uh, trust that things will work out and uh, that we will be peace peaceful in the process. And Lord, we thank you for the chance to be in this class and to share in your word, this wonderful, precious word that you've given us. Help us to open it carefully, read it wisely, and to uh, handle it faithfully. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, we're in Romans, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 4. Right, so, let's start at 1. Yes, please. Okay, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. I praise you for remembering me in everything, for holding to the teachings, just as I passed them on to you. Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Four. Every man. Four. Yes. Number four. Every man who prays for prophecies, his head covered dishonors his head. Okay. Uh, before I get into that, one more prayer request that came to mind. He's very peculiar about me saying anything. So all I can say is his first name is Mike, and uh, he's in surgery today, and he does a great deal for this church. I won't say any more than that, but uh, when we're praying at the end of the, the class, please and when you go home, please remember Mike. He does a lot for this church, and he's having surgery today. 
we would pray he wouldn't have any pain. That's his main thing is he just, he doesn't care about the surgery or even going home. He just doesn't want pain in the process, which sounds like me. I, I'm a baby. Anyway, um, so here we go. I'll read it one more time. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. This is the section that I said I did the um, synth uh, synthetic study on in Bible college. And it's a marvelous passage. It's highly misunderstood. And people will disagree on the conclusions that I make here. That's fine. They haven't done the study I have, so I'll leave it at that. Um, it's going to be a little contentious maybe in some of the verses, as would be the case with when we get to tongues, okay? Um, if you disagree, just disagree. I, I, I'm not going to argue the points. I'm doing the study. I'm giving the information that I feel is correct, and I would certainly not intentionally mishandle these things. So, 11.4, this verse and those to follow show what is orderly and proper in terms of conduct within the church. Paul doesn't actually explain why he says these things. Thus, it assumes that those in Corinth would understand his words without the need for explanation, even if we today don't. Knowing this, we can look at the situation as it was when Paul wrote. It was and still is the custom of Jews to pray with their heads covered by a talit, which is a prayer shawl. It's the prayer shawl I put on every week when we say the Lord's Supper, okay? And they cover their heads, okay? So think of a talit when you're thinking about that particular uh, precept there, okay? Uh, it is a sign of their unworthiness to communicate face-to-face -face with God. Greeks, on the other hand, were known to pray with their heads uncovered. So we, as I said, we don't know what Paul is thinking, what brought him to this. It could be one of the questions that was brought to him, or it could be that he's seeing something that's going on that he wants to address. They know the reason. We may not, but we get the information anyway so that we can understand what's going on. Now, before I go on, what, what would happen if a man covers his head with a tali and prays? Well, you don't know who's in there, right? He's all covered up. So we'll leave it at that and just think about that. Okay, because of these differences, those in Corinth must have added this into their list of questions, which is correct. And why? You've got the Jews covering their heads. You've got the Gentiles that don't. That's probably what happened as they sent him a question. There are several good reasons for Paul's words, and they would have been understood without further details in the response. First, the removing of a hat or turban or whatever head covering was used was considered a sign of respect towards a superior. We'll do that even today. Okay, those who wear hats today, oh, there you go, we'll still often do this. It would have been disrespectful to do otherwise. Therefore, as a sign of respect to our head, and I'll probably say this again, I will, uh, so I won't say it right now. As a sign of respect to our head, capital H meaning Jesus, who is Christ, we should have our heads uncovered when praying or prophesying. Otherwise, we would dishonor our head, capital H meaning Christ. The word for head is, which is kafali, carries both ideas of a physical head as well as one in authority, just as it does today. We say he's the head of the department, okay? And he's got a head on his head or on his shoulders. So it means the exact same thing. Head means the same thing in Greek as it does here, okay? Secondly, if we are in Christ because of our faith in his work, then we have become worthy before our heavenly father. Why did the Jews cover their heads with the talit? Because they felt unworthy of being in the presence of God. Well, because of Christ, we are in Christ, and thus we are worthy, okay? Not worthy in and of ourselves, but worthy because of Christ. As it says in John, we are beloved because of the Father, etc., etc., okay? So, 
This is not because of our own righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Christ who has been imputed to us. To keep our heads covered, as the Jews obviously continued to do, was to imply that they remained unworthy before God. It was an unnecessary show of piety, which was which had set aside, which was set aside by the work of Christ. It demonstrates a failure, albeit probably unintentionally, to accept the honor granted upon them as believers. Okay, and thirdly, as he noted in the previous verse, the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man. The head of Christ is God. If woman women are present in the gathering, okay, you got women in the gathering, then another issue arises. As the head of woman is the man, then the man actually dishonors his head, meaning Christ, when he renounces his authority over the woman by being covered in the presence of the woman over whom he is the head. Understand the logic there? For the for at least these reasons, and probably others which were understood within the Corinthian church, Paul has given us these instructions. Life application. There is an order and a propriety in which we are to conduct ourselves within the church and while presenting ourselves before the Lord. And yet we need to understand that we can take things to unintended extremes, which can only lead to legalism. Care needs to be taken concerning how we conduct ourselves, while at the same time, we need to not push personal peeves concerning an issue to the forefront of our church life. In all things, adhering to the word of God will keep us from going beyond what is written. Okay, verse 5. And every woman who prays or prophecies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. Okay. <sighs> Whoops, I got rid of that a little too quickly there. Verse 5, Paul will note elsewhere that it is right for a woman to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. That's 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34. I didn't write that. Paul did. Okay, and Paul is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. There you go. Okay, he will also state, um, yes, I'll read it again. Um, Let a woman remain in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in silence. He writes that in 1 Timothy 2, verse 11 and 12. Once again, I didn't write those words. Paul did, okay? Paul is under the inspiration of the Spirit. So if there's a problem with me citing those verses in this church, please take it up with the Lord. Don't take it up with me, all right? All I can do is say that this is what the Word says, and people will try to get around that in 10,000 different ways in the church today. There is no getting around it. It is a prescription from Paul under the influence of the Holy Spirit by the command of the Lord. Okay, therefore, Paul is not giving instruction on the public assembly of the church in 1 Corinthians 11.5. The items he is addressing here are explicitly forbidden in those other two verses. Therefore, we know he is rather giving general guidelines for specific occasions, not particularly pertaining to a church gathering. See the logic there? Because he's already given instructions in those two verses concerning a woman and her conduct in the church. Therefore, he cannot be speaking about the public gathering there. He is addressing issues one at a time in his letter and slowly revealing proper conduct for believers. Therefore, to use this verse as a text to indicate that it was either right or acceptable for a woman to speak or lead in the church 
will result in improper handling of the entire intent of his instructions. His concern at this point is not to determine the correctness of that issue, but to ensure proper conduct of this particular issue. In cases concerning this matter, which are being addressed in response to an inquiry by the Corinthians, as I said, he's answering their questions as he goes along, he now gives the continued response. First, he gave instruction concerning the man and what was to be considered orderly and proper. Now he gives the contrast by beginning with the term pasade, or every moreover, which is thus translated but every. He then notes that every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. This, like the previous verse, uses the double signification of the word kafali, or head. The first time it is speaking of the literal head, the second time it is speaking of her spiritual head, which was first, which was defined in verse 3 as man. Man is her head. If a woman prays or prophesies with her physical head uncovered, she dishonors her spiritual head, man who has authority over her. If she does this, then he notes that for that one and the same as, uh, yes, for that one is one in the same as if her head were shaved. Okay, everybody understand that? She's got her head uncovered. He said she might as well just unshave, go ahead and shave her head. All right, we'll get to the answer as to why. The question which obviously arises then is, does shaving a head have significance in the culture at that time? The answer is yes. Scholars are in agreement that among both Jewish culture and Greek culture, long hair was considered honorable and a glory to a woman. The Bible gives several examples of when women should shave her head. Ritual cleansing from leprosy, Leviticus 14. Completion of a Nazarite vow, Numbers chapter 6. Shaving one's head for the dead in a negative context in Deuteronomy 14. Shaving one's hair in mourning as a captive would be Deuteronomy 21. Each of these were out of the ordinary occasions. So the norm was to have long hair, thus identifying her as a woman under authority. Seeing the culture shame of a woman being shorn, it leads to understanding the significance of her retaining her long hair. As a woman wears her hair long as a sign of her subjection to man, so the man wears his hair short as a sign of subjection to Christ. Everybody following this? Okay. Life application. Paul meticulously handles matters, going from subject to subject and addressing issues in an orderly fashion. If his writings, like any part of the Bible, are taken out of context, which these certainly are by many in the church, inevitable confusion or incorrect doctrine will result. His words are always directed toward the ultimate goal of exalting Jesus Christ. Therefore, special care and respectful handling of the word of God is of paramount importance. Six. Six. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. If it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or shaved, she should cover her head. Okay. As seen in the previous verse, there were instances noted in the Old Testament when a woman's hair was to be shaved. We had four of them that I noted. Those instances were for specific purposes and not as a usual custom. Paul builds on that now. He's noted 
he noted that praying with her head uncovered is the same as if she were shaved. And now he says, if she isn't covered, let her also be shorn. In the first half of this verse, Paul is giving a direction. If she is going to disregard the first, she shames her head, meaning the man under whose authority she stands. If she does this, then she should be shaved as a shame to herself. In the second half of the verse, he notes that if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. The intent is that because it is shameful, and presumably no woman would want to be shamed in this way, then she should cover her head to avoid the first shame, which is to her head, meaning the man, which would result in the second shame, that of being shorn. To shave the head is to unveil the head. What was given by nature as a covering, and what serves as a fashion statement in women, is removed in the process of shaving the head. These natural traits are lost, and that which is considered unnatural is what results. What Paul is saying in this verse is not specifically a command, but rather it is an attempt to get his audience to think it through to a logical conclusion, what it means for a woman to pray or prophesy with her head uncovered. If she insists on this, then she also, by default, should insist that she should be shorn, explicitly or implicitly, by her actions. And if she does this, then it implies that the concept of equality between the sexes does not actually apply in all cases. As Ellicott astutely observes, he says, it is illogical to argue in favor of any general principle as if it were of universal obligation, when you yourselves admit that it is not applicable in some cases. God has shown us in his word what is right and appropriate, and he has shown that there is a hierarchy which exists and is to be adhered to. When it is violated, it upsets what is natural and proper. Unfortunately, many accepted principles of the New Testament are simply dismissed in today's churches. This is especially true in churches which have deviated from the principles concerning propriety of conduct in regards to women. If these principles are ignored, then the floodgates of scriptural deviation are opened wide. In essence, it is a rejection of Christ's headship over his church. Life application. One cannot simply ignore verses or precepts which they don't like without opening up a rushing torrent of bad doctrine. Every word of God has been given to instruct the people of God, and thus a refusal to accept every word can only lead down one sorrowful path of eventual apostasy. It may take time, but the inevitable this is the inevitable outcome. Now, before I go on, I know that some of this is complicated because the words are not things that we think of normally. If you have any prob problem with this and you want to read it again so that you understand it and you can grasp it, all of this is posted online, right at wonderful1.com. Just go to the one Corinthian, wonderful numeral one, not O-N-E, the numeral one, wonderful1.com. Go to the one Corinthians Bible study and scroll down to one Corinthians 11. You can read it all online. Or if you want the notes on a word format, I'll email you the entire book of 1 Corinthians 11 that I've got uh, done, okay? I'll email the whole thing, and you'll have it in your word processor. Or if you want, I'll send you the link to whatever you can't find. But I understand it's complicated, but this is the word of the Lord. And one thing that you will know, and this is without fail, 
is the first woman that was ordained in America. They know who she was and they've got the day she was ordained and you can go online and women ordained in America and you can go take it to Wikipedia first and it'll show every one of them that was ever ordained in every denomination and they do the same thing with England. And if you follow the ordination of those women and the track of that church after that day, it is always down, always, because God does not allow it. It is not acceptable in his word. And as soon as you pull out one thread of God's word, the word no longer has the same meaning that it had before. And you will follow this in every single denomination that is allowed this. So that's just the way it is. And can't help you if you're not going to obey God's word with simple things that are very explicit. Okay, verse 11, 7. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. The woman is the glory of man. The words thus far on this subject have been referring to the relation between women, men, and Christ as pertaining to the church and order within the church. Now, and for a few verses, they will refer to the relation between women, men, and Christ as pertaining to creation and order within creation. It is a switch to the concept of the woman in relation to the man who is created in the image and glory of God. For this reason, man should not cover his head. This then is the answer to the problem addressed in verse four. Okay, before I go on, have I got something on my head? This is not a covering, okay? Can you tell that I'm a man or not? Anybody? Because if you can't, you've got a serious deficiency in your, uh, your ability to discern. Okay, that is what this is speaking of. I could just see the emails flooding in if I don't qualify this, because we'll get to this eventually, but we might not finish the chapter today. You can tell I'm a man. There's no doubt about it. Okay, anyway. We'll go back. This then is the answer to the problem addressed in verse 4. Because man is created in God's image, he should reflect that image when he is performing one of two awesome duties of praying or prophesying. However, woman is the glory of man. This indicates her glory. It does not say image is once removed from God. Her glory is once removed from God. Everybody got that? It doesn't say image. It says glory, and it is once removed. She is the glory of man. All right, I got into a debate with somebody about that this week. I said something during the prophecy update about, you know, the nature of God that he is indicated in the Bible as the masculine, and it went back and forth and back and forth. I can do this all day long. You're not going to change my mind about the theology which the Bible teaches. You've got a presupposition about this particular issue. You're going to hold on to it, and that's fine, but you are incorrect and taking verses just as we, I said a few minutes ago, completely out of context and applying them to this issue because I am going to prove my point. That's not how you work. And I don't play scripture tennis. After the third time, I'm done, okay? It, that's, it doesn't do you any good to just pull things out of context and send a bunch of verses in. So anyway, um, let's see here. Um, where was I? It is a switch. I said that, okay? And, okay, let me read this right here. However, woman is the glory of man. This indicates her glory. It does not say image is once removed from God. Does this in any way contradict Genesis 1 verse 27? Let me read what it says there. Genesis 1 verse 27. All right, right at the very beginning of the Bible. God set the parameters. He set the, the stage for this. Genesis 1 27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay, there you go. Does that in any way contradict Genesis 1.27? The answer is no, this is not a contradiction. Paul only says woman is the glory of man. 
If image were implied in this context, the fact would still remain that the woman is in the image of man and man is in the image of God. This would indicate or indirectly mean woman is in the image of God. We can see that Paul is carefully using his words to show that the creation account itself supports his directives concerning covering one's head while praying or prophesying. The pulpit commentary once again describes the relationship quite eloquently. They say, as moonlight is to sunlight, or as the earth shine is to moonshine, not moonshine, that gotcha. they, yeah, uh, man reflects God. Woman, in her general nature, in this earthly and temporal dispensation, reflects the glory of man. Life application. Nothing demeaning or spiteful is flowing from the pen of Paul as he gives his directives for men and women in the church. Rather, that which is most glorifying to God is his intent, because this is so. To reject his words is to deny God the glory which is intended for God in his words. Let us not be found in such an untenable position. Okay, there's nothing demeaning here. This is simply how God has structured the world. It says that the gospel went where? To the to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Is there anything demeaning about that? That God chose the Jews above us to give them the... the well, they might think that, but, you know, that's once again working against God's intent. To the Jew first and then to the Gentile. I would love to be able to say I'm a Jew. And any time that I have a Jewish friend that is a believer, I always use them as an example because I'm proud of that. And I wish that I could be that example. I'm not. There's nothing demeaning in it. It is how God has structured the world. Charlie Garrett was born a bacon eater. Okay, that's just the way it is. I am a Gentile. But it doesn't change anything that you're a man or a woman. He has just done it this way for his purposes to bring him the most glory. Okay, the words of the Bible are meant to show God's glory. The directives found there are for that intent and aim. And so, as we peruse the wondrous redemption story, let us consider our actions as bringing glory to his name. When we stray from the words intended for us to follow, we then deny him his just and rightful due. That is certainly a horrid pill to taste or to swallow. And so, to his word, let us be faithful and true. He will reward us in due time for adherence to his word, and nothing we do in his name will he overlook. And so in everything we do, let us glorify our Lord by following the directives that have been given in his book. 11.8. Paul here with my, my Bible study, study guide here. Yes. Their explanations on this stuff. It's like insane. I'm, you know, yeah, go ahead. Left unsaid, however, is the fact that both men and women are created in God's image. It's like, well... It doesn't actually say that, does it? Yeah. The next sentence. Okay, well, let's go with eight. Our man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Okay, that was eleven eight. Let me eight. see. Okay, I just wanted. Yes, it says the same thing here. I just wanted to make sure my eyes weren't on it. So, okay, the details of creation of man and the subsequent creation of woman from man are recorded in Genesis chapter two. They confirm points which are pertinent to Paul's argument. Man was created first by God directly from the dust of the earth. After this, woman was created for the help and benefit of man. Her creation came about from man, not from the dust of the earth. And her creation was not for her own benefit, but for the benefit of the man. 
three citations from that Genesis account will show us this. Let me take you back there really quickly and we'll read these so you can see exactly what this is referring to. This is first Genesis 2 verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. Genesis 2.18, and the Lord God said, it is not good that a man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And then in Genesis 21 and uh, 2, 21 and 22, and the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib, which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. All right, I'll go on. Verse 23, and Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Uh, just by the way, just so you know, in Genesis 2.18, if you accept the Genesis account and you still struggle with a short-term creation of the heavens and the earth, you know, 6,000 years instead, or six days, uh, and the earth is 6,000 years old, uh, if you accept the rest of the Genesis account, Genesis 2.18 confirms a short creation. It says, and the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. Go figure that one out, or we can talk about it again later. I know I've talked about it in class before, but that does confirm a short-term creation. Anyway, um, it can be seen then that just as Eve stood in relation to Adam, all women stand in a general relationship to all men. In other words, there is order even in this issue, which prompts thought and implies a hierarchy. Christ, man, woman. Life application. The Bible progressively reveals truths which are to be applied in a logical sequence in order to properly grasp what God is doing in redemptive history. Taking things out of that logical order will inevitably lead to disorder. For example, societal breakdown can be directly tied to not following the patriarchal system of family rule. When the father is removed from family headship, all of society suffers. There are three people sitting here that are intimately aware of this. We see it every single Saturday of our life. Okay? If you don't believe me, come with us some Saturday down to the projects and see where they've taken the men out of the relationship and all there is is dysfunction. That is all there is. That's all you get is dysfunction, okay? Paying attention to what God has ordained will keep individuals, families, societies, and even the state of man on earth in proper functioning order and in a right relationship with God. Why do you think the left is so adamant about destroying the nuclear family, taking the father out of the house? Why do you think they're, because they are anti-God, they hate what God has ordained, and they will do everything they can in every precept of this society to destroy that. It doesn't matter what precept you have in society. If it is a biblical precept, they will attack it and they will destroy it because they understand that God is in control and they don't like that. They don't like the fact that he is in control and that he has determined certain things for our benefit, not for our harm. Okay, 11.9. Neither was man created for woman. But woman for man. Okay, I gotta check that here. Uh, yes, that's fine. Okay, sorry about that. I closed my Bible and I had to get back there really quickly. Eleven nine stated in concise form. Paul reiterates the thought of Genesis two verse eighteen, which I just cited you a couple minutes ago. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will create a helper for him. Okay, that's a paraphrase, Charlie Garrett paraphrase. But anyway, Genesis two eighteen. Man was not created for the woman, but rather woman for the man. 
Thus, man has been given headship over the woman. And yet there is a benefit from the subordinate position because her true happiness is dependent on him. She has an entitlement to his care and protection. If one thinks of Christ in the church, as Paul is making this connection, then they can rightly see this. Christ will be pleased with his church when his church is in its proper subordinate position. When they follow his instructions and meet his plans as they are laid out, he has the onus to care for them as his word states, right? When the concept here is not one of tyrannical rule over a wife, but one of love, care, and protection. Women who cast off this model only prove themselves unworthy of all three of these points, just as a disobedient church will have its lampstand removed when it stands contrary to the Lordship of Christ. That's Revelation 2, verse 5. I'm going to come and take your lampstand away. Okay? Another point to consider concerning this verse is that it fully supports the notion of creation, not evolution. It further implicitly teaches short-term creation. I didn't even remember I put this in here, but there you go. In addition to countless other verses which people want to ignore or claim as allegorical, Paul acknowledges that humans were created. We did not evolve. If man was created, it was in a day, and it was in the manner which the Genesis account states. Otherwise, Paul would have nothing to back up his statement in this verse. Okay, due to the logical progression of creation and the introduction of what is termed good in the creation account, here's what I was going to tell you we'll talk about sometime. I put it in this commentary, so I don't have to talk about it sometime. We'll talk about it right now. I'll read this again. Due to the logical progression of creation and the introduction of what is termed good in the creation account. Everybody got that? It was the first day and God says it is good. It is the second day and God said it is good. It is, and he gets down to the sixth day and he says that, Oh, very good, right? Okay, well, as the pattern is a literal day for day, the sixth day, then it would be a complete abuse of the text to assume that the other five days were not literal. Allegory, schmallegory. The Bible's proclamation of the events of Genesis are backed up by the words of the apostles and more importantly, by the words of Christ. Now, I didn't get into any detail with that, so I will right now. Here's what it says. I'm going to go back here and I'm going to take you to Genesis 1 real quickly. I talked about it, but I didn't answer my own thing in here. So I, I expect people to think it through. And that's kind of hard, especially when you're sitting here listening to me. If you're reading the commentary, I know you would. But here's what it says. On the first day, it says, um, uh, uh, waters were divided. And it was so. Um, anyway, brought forth its seed and God saw that it was good. Evening and the morning were the third day. And he does it each day of the week. The, the first day, um, the evening and the morning were the first day. Uh, then God said, let there be light, okay, and the second day. So the evening and the morning were the second day. And then uh, God saw that it was good the third day. Verse 14, uh, uh, 4, where is it? Two great lights. Uh, this is the fourth day. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. And then he goes down here um, uh, with verse 23. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Okay, and then we get down to here, and it says, and God saw that it was good. And then God says, verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have, so he's talking about the creation of man in Genesis 1, 26. Okay, and at the very end of that, it says, verse 31, then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good at the end of the sixth day. Everybody got that? It was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Paul just said that man was created. He didn't say he evolved, and Paul's entire 
theology would be destroyed if that wasn't true. And the Bible would be proven false if that wasn't true. So we know that it was one day on the sixth day. What does it say in the creation account in Genesis 2, which is an insert of what happened on the sixth day? Okay, it says there in uh, verse 18, 2, 18, and the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. That's happening on the sixth day. And at the end of the sixth day, it says everything was very good. You understand that? There was something not good before the woman was created. Therefore, man was created on one day, woman was created on one day, and there's no other possible explanation for that from a scriptural point of view. It must be a literal six-day creation, okay? Or this isn't the Word of God. If you dismiss that, then you're dismissing what God has said. Do whatever you want with it, but I, when I came to that conclusion, I had to say, God, you are God. I was brought up here in Sarasota, Florida. I went to Riverview High School. They teach evolution, and that's what I believed because that's what I believed. That's what they taught me. They must be right. They're smarter than me. And when I got to this in the Genesis account, and I saw that it says it is not good on the second, on the sixth day, in the middle of the day, and at the end of the day, it says it's very good. I said to myself, you're God. I'm just going to go with it. And I've stuck with that ever since because God is God. This is his word. I believe it fully. And therefore, I'm just going to have to stand on that. And I can look as stupid as I want in people's eyes. And I don't care at all. Doesn't bother me at all. Okay. I'm ugly. I might as well be stupid too. Okay. Let's see here. We have... Um, life application. There is nothing demeaning in the Bible concerning the roles of men and women and the hierarchy which is noted there. Instead, it is how God has ordained these things so that we can understand the other hierarchies which exist. We don't rule over Christ. He rules over us. If we get our levels of subordination out of order, only chaos will result. This is perfectly evident as Western society is progressively thrown off the patriarchal family. Okay, before I go on, I always get somebody that emails me and says, you're not ugly. Please don't say that. I, it, that's, what do you call it? Self-deprivation. Um, I'm trying to make people smile. That's all. I, I know I'm the handsomest guy in the world. My wife will tell you that for sure. Okay, I'm just making a joke. Please don't say, don't call yourself ugly because it's just self-deprecation. -depre okay, 1110. For this reason... And because of the angel... Take care, Friday. Have a wonderful day. The woman ought to have a sign of authority on her. Read that again. I interrupted you. I didn't yeah, mean to. That's but. okay. For this reason, and because of the angel, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. Okay. 11.10. For this reason is referring to the hierarchy mentioned verse 9. The covering mentioned earlier is a symbol of authority over the woman. Based on this statement, we can then interpret the meaning of head from verse 11, 5, as authority, not the physical head. An example of this is found later in Paul's writings in 1 Timothy chapter 2. I could cite it to you, but I'm not going to. I'm just going to go ahead and go to 1 Timothy 2. It's actually 11 and 12. I said 1 Timothy uh, 2 and 12, but it says here, uh, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. Verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man but to be in silence. And then he explains why in verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Okay, 
verse 15 is a very complicated verse. I've got the an analysis for it if you need it right away. If not, wait a couple months and we'll be in 1 Timothy and it, it won't be long. But anyway, um, it, it's a very complicated verse and there's a lot of complicated verses. One of them is um, where Peter speaks about the spirit preaching to, or, you know, preaching to the spirits in prison, you know, okay. I know that's a complicated verse. There's an answer to it. We'll get to that as well. But um, for right now, we're in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 10, okay? And this covering shows the authority placed over her, and therefore what Paul writes in 1 Timothy is both explicit and it is expected. The modern church, which is inundated with women pastors, preachers, teachers, reverends, and the like, is therefore in willful disobedience of the word of the Lord. There can be no rewards for disobedience, and so the work they are doing, even if it brings others to Christ, will only bring self-inflicted loss. Does everybody understand that? The end cannot justify the means in Scripture. Paula White preaches to all these people up in Tampa, and she advises our president, okay? Pastor Paula White. I don't care if 50,000 people come to Christ through her ministry. She will not get one reward for that because she's doing it in disobedience. If you do something in disobedience to the word of the Lord, he, can you imagine him saying, you standing before him for your judgment, and you say, I brought all these people to Christ, but in the process I did this thing that you told me not to do. Can you imagine him saying, well, that's okay. I'm going to reward you anyway. That will never happen. The Lord is perfectly just, and he is perfectly righteous, and he is perfectly holy. The end cannot justify the means in anything we do in this life. Okay, Paul then explains this by saying, because of the angels. What exactly does that mean? There is no verse elsewhere in scripture that explicitly refers to this statement. A search of several sound and notable Bibles, com Bible commentaries indicates the following. All right, it's a very complicated thing he says. There's nothing else to refer to. So here are some people's analysis of it. First is Matthew Henry's commentary on the whole Bible. This would the apostle have the woman appear in Christian assemblies, even though they spoke there by inspiration because of the angels. That is, some say because of the evil angels. The woman was first in the transgression, being deceived by the devil, which increased her subjection to man. That's Genesis 3.16. Now believe, uh, now believe evil angels will be sure to mix in all Christian assemblies. Therefore, should women wear the token of their shamefacedness and subjection, which in that age and country was a veil? Others say because of the good angels. Jews and Christians have had an opinion that these ministering spirits are many of them present in their assemblies. Their presence should restrain Christians from all indecencies in the worship of God. Note, we should learn from all to behave in the public assemblies of divine worship so as to express a reverence for God and a content and satisfaction with that rank in which he has placed us. Okay, that's Matthew Henry. He says some people say it's evil angels. Some people say it's good angels. It wouldn't be evil angels because Paul would have said that. He simply says because of the angels. The Geneva Bible. What this means, I do not yet understand. From the Barnes's notes on the New... I love that. They're so honest about it. Yeah. Barnes's notes on the New Testament in a lengthy discourse on the subject. It was like this long. I'm not going to cite the whole thing. He sums up, I do not know what it means. And I regard it as one of the very few passages in the Bible whose meaning as yet is wholly inexplicable. 
well done, Albert Barnes. Okay. From Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, who are present at our Christian assemblies. That's uh, Psalm 138, verse 1, God's, that is, the angels, and delight in the orderly subordination of the several ranks of God's worshipers in their respective places, the outward demeanor and dress of the latter being indicative of that inward humility, which angels know to be most pleasing to their common Lord. And then they cite a bunch of verses. Hammond quotes Chrysostom, Thou standest with angels, thou singest with them, thou hymnest with them, and yet thou dost stand laughing? Bengal explains, as the angels are in relation to God, so the woman is in relation to man. God's face is uncovered. Angels in his presence are veiled, Isaiah 6.2. Man's face is uncovered. Woman in his presence is to be veiled. For her not to be so would by its indecorousness offend the angels, and then they cite Matthew 18, 10, and 31. She, by her weakness, especially needs their ministry. She ought, therefore, to be the more careful not to offend them. And then from the Wycliffe Bible Commentary, the insubordination of women in refusing to acknowledge the authority of their husbands would offend the angels who, under God, created guard the created universe and they cite colossians 1 and ephesians 1 and no no insubordination so they're saying the angels would be offended by women doing this the commentaries from the geneva bible and albert barnes are probably the most honest commentaries on this subject although they don't help very much due to variance of opinion on the matter and the lack of direct scriptural links which actually support the statement there is truly no harm in stating, I don't know what this means. However, the comment by Matthew Henry and the evil angels makes at least partial sense. In the end, Paul knew what he was writing and the Corinthians at that time understood it. Because of this, we can trust that the statement because of the angels is a valid one in and of itself, even if it isn't fully understood. It is a tenet which we can know is both sound and reasonable. I'm sorry, that's the best answer I can give you is quoting a bunch of people and saying, I also don't know. Life application, even if we don't fully understand why tenets are given in the Bible, or further, even if we don't understand the explanation given for the why, if we understand the directive, then we need to be obedient to that directive. Not understanding why something is directed is not an excuse to disobey the command. Verse 1111. It might also be another uh, proof that, you know, when I die, I'm not going to become an angel. Well, that's true. And <laughs> we are not enough. going to be angels. People right. say that all the time, and that is incorrect. But you're right. Well said. Okay. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. Okay, well, I didn't have my page, so I'm just going to go with it. Paul's words thus far have shown that there is an understood hierarchy that exists between men and women. Women, Because of this hierarchy, there are restrictions and rules which are to be adhered to in this relationship. However, Paul begins verse 11 with the word, nevertheless. The introduction of this word is to have the reader stop and consider what he will next present. They are words which indicate that even if there are defined lines of authority in the male-female relationship, they are not to be abused. Care is to be exercised so that this relationship isn't harmed 
or somehow perverted in a way which degrades the female. And so he says, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. The fact is, despite a hier hierarchical relationship, men and women in the Lord need each other and they complement each other. It says as much in Genesis 2, 23 and 24. We read that a few minutes ago. All right. The fact is, despite a, oh, I already said that, since that time, all men have been born of a woman. Men and women have a undeniable natural interdependency. And though woman is subordinated to the man in the family and in the church, it is a subordination intended for order and propriety, not for heavy-handed rule or abuse. The need for a woman to continue the species is seen in a notable way in the book of Ruth. When Ruth, Naomi's stepdaughter, had a son, the woman, women of Bethlehem rightly called out the value of Ruth, saying, For your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you than seven sons that she has borne him. What seven sons could never have done without a woman, namely bearing a child, Ruth was able to do in her union to Boaz. As is evident here and throughout Scripture, the subordination of women is not without purpose, and their importance is not only noted, but it is highlighted. Life application. If you are in a discussion with a modern feminist and they tell you the tired old line that the Bible diminishes the role of women, tell them to quit with the cliches, read the Bible for themselves, and grow up. All right, go ahead. Verse 11, whatever's next. 12. 12. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Okay, this one says all things come from God. Before I go on, if you go back to the uh, book of Leviticus where the woman is supposedly treated in an unfavorable light, and you listen to the sermons I did on every one of those verses that, that uh, feminists today tear apart, you will see that actually it is exactly the opposite. The woman is given much more care, much more care, and much more favor than the text seems to imply at the beginning when you just look at it and you say oh that's unfair to the woman it's exactly the opposite and so if somebody ever uses those verses go read the commentary cut and paste it and send it off to him i did that for jim on a an issue concerning abortion just yesterday if you will see this from time to time people will argue that the bible uh promotes abortion because in the book of leviticus there is uh, a, 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 a potion for making a woman have an abortion, right? And you'll see this, and they'll argue this point. First off, it's not in the book of Leviticus. It's in Numbers chapter 6, right before the Nazarite vow is the bitter waters. And it's not speaking about an abortion at all, not in any way, shape, or form. So you have to get the commentary. I'll send it to you, and you can send it you off to those people. It. That is wholly untrue. What's that? Yeah, you just read it, and you can tell it's not true. But if you want the Hebrew commentary, I've got it. And another one is also where people say that Pot is used in the Bible in the Holy of Holies, and they use the term ketorot samim, which means uh, fragrant incense. And they say, "See, this is this is speaking of marijuana." And because people don't know Hebrew and they don't know the Bible, they think, "Oh, it's okay to have pot because it's not even hinted at in there. It's not even hinted at there." But people will use that. Okay, verse eleven, twelve. This verse begins with four. Paul has taken a broad concept and is bringing it down to various. Of very specific points to be considered. Because of the delicate nature of the passage, it would be good to stop, go back, and review the main prepositions and conjunctions as they are given to show us the sequence of thought 
from the beginning of the passage. Remember, particularly, that this is considered a tradition established through the apostles for the church. It is not merely a cultural thing which pertained only to the Corinthians, because modern scholars and uh, people that want to use the Bible against itself will say, well, that was cultural, and that was only something that pertained to the Corinthians. We know that's not true because the book of 1 Corinthians is where? It's in the Bible. It is prescriptive for all people in the church age. Okay, but going on. Uh, read that again. Remember especially that this is a considered a tradition established through the apostles for the church. It is not merely a cultural thing which pertained only to the Corinthians, but it is an expected propriet, uh, propriety during all of the church age. Note the main thought of verse 2 which is to keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. And remember it while considering each word highlighted while reading. And I will highlight to you when I highlight it here. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Verse three, but, highlighted but, I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. Verse 5, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovers, covered, dishonors her head. For that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. Verse 6, for if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. Verse 7, for a man indeed ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Verse 8, for man is not from woman, but woman from man, nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. Verse 10, for this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Verse 11, nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. And verse 12, for as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman, but all things are from God. In the first half of verse 12, Paul builds on verses 11, 8 and 11, 11. In the second half of the verse, he reminds the Corinthians and thus all readers that both men and women are not independent of God, but are subject to him as the creation is to the creator. The mystery of God's ways is demonstrated here. Eve was taken from Adam's side, but man since then has come through woman. A point that should not be missed is that even Christ came through a woman who came from both a man and a woman. Christ is the head of man, but man fell, and all who were born of man are fallen in Adam. However, because Christ came through a woman, but not directly from man, the fallen nature of Adam was cut in him. It is the fulfillment of the picture made by the rite of circumcision. The cutting of the male organ was a picture of cutting away the sin nature of man. Eventually, Christ came and fulfilled that picture. Now, when one calls on him, they move from Adam to Christ, and thus the sin nature is likewise cut in that person. Therefore, Christ is our head, and therefore we owe him the respect of staying within the parameters of what his word mandates for us. And so the coming verses concerning hair and head coverings are given to show us what is right and proper 
Paul has shown in this discourse why it is so. Life application. What may seem arbitrary and unnecessary in a command or <coughs> exhortation is often not so when properly understood. Taking the time to review passages and looking for key markers, meaning prepositions in particular, within each passage will help us solidify our understanding of why things are expected. In the end, it should always come back to what is honoring to our Lord. Verse 11, 13. Okay, first I have yes. to say correction. Okay. Not self-deprecation. It's self-deprecation. Deprecation, isn't it? Whatever, degradation, deprecation, anyway, good. Whatever it is, I said it wrong, but you got the point there. So, there you go. yeah, okay, good. All right, okay. Hey, judge for yourselves. Is, is it proper for a woman to pray to God her head uncovered? Okay. Paul asks the Corinthians to judge, to make a correct decision concerning this matter. When Paul says, judge among yourselves, he is asking them to see how obvious the matter is. Uh, there should be no question as to a right determination. Because of the context, he expects the reader to understand that it is not proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered. It is a rhetorical question which demands a no answer. A woman dishonors her head when she does so. Going further, the petition isn't merely to judge, but to judge among yourselves. An open judgment among the people will show what the individual heart may attempt to hide. As an example to understand the universal nature of this or any such issue, we can look at the issue of abortion. People make claims about the propriety of abortion all the time. They even do it in public forums. However, if two or more people were in an honest debate on the issue, one without personal attacks or red herrings, the truth would come out. If one were to ask openly and frankly from a natural perspective, which is what Paul is doing concerning the issue he is addressing, as to the morality of removing a live baby from a woman and murdering it, the proponents of abortion would have no true argument. Unfortunately, the morality of the issue is never addressed in this manner. Rather, legality or personal feelings are inevitably introduced and the abortion issue continues to cast its deathly pall over society. Paul is using the same tactic here. He could ask, is it legal for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? And everybody here would say, yeah, sure. There's nothing illegal about it. Sometimes legal doesn't mean right. I'll ask you a question. Was it once legal in America to own slaves? Yes. Do we think that that was right now in today's world? Not at all. Okay. Legal does not make right. Governments cannot override what is proper from God's perspective. Cannot do it. Okay? So, is it legal? The answer, at least within Christian circles, is certainly yes. He could ask, how do you personally feel about the issue? If he did, he would receive all kinds of responses, and the most vocal group would prevail regardless of propriety. However, he returns to the very basics of the issue. He first shows the nature of the Godhead itself. He then shows the nature of propriety within creation. And finally, he asks his question. He cuts out the argument before it begins. And so he answers to their question. The, his answers to their question will not need further clarification or explanation. Okay, everybody understanding? He started with the Godhead. Then he went to creation. And then he went to the question at hand. 
He started with the question at the very beginning, talking about covering of a head, right? And then he immediately went into the nature of the Godhead. He went into the nature of creation. Obviously, God has created the creator, and we are the created, and he's given us a certain forum or a formal decorum in order for us to conduct our lives. And then he brings in the issue. So there can be no argument on it. If only we would follow the same pattern in our own moral decisions, we would have them more in line with what is right and proper in the eyes of the Creator. Unfortunately, Christianity in great measure has become a religion of personal likes and dislikes and of clinging to what is legal instead of what is moral. Rather than following these temporary avenues, the Christian should pursue personal and corporate obedience to God and to his word. Why? Because this is an extension of who God is. If this is the word of God and God is God, then it is an extension of him and it cannot be in fault. Okay. Our translations can have errors. Our source documents, because they are not the originals, can have errors in them. And that's why we have textual criticism. And we've got people that spend their entire lives going through the documents to ensure that we have a word that is as close to what God has given us as possible. And we've talked about the reasons why there are not originals in past classes. There are valid reasons why God has kept them from us. And there are several very good ones. We'll go through that again some other time. But it's an important thing to understand that we have a reliable word of God, a very, very reliable word of God. Life application. Am I discerning the obvious when I read the Bible and make correct decisions based on this discernment? Or am I overlooking exhortations which apply to me without giving them proper consideration? Am I trying to insert my personal likes and dislikes at the expense of right doctrine? If so, Lord, please change my heart. Verse 1114. Okay, question. Yes. I think you're going to get to this, but should people, women, wear... I'm going to get to that. Okay, well then I won't say any more. Very good. <laughs> Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? Okay. I had hair about this long when I was at Temple Baptist Church down the road here. That's The kids went to West Florida Christian School, and after I became a Christian, I started you know, going to Temple Baptist because it was the same. And very legalistic church. Very legalistic. And I hate to tell you how barbecued people would give me over this. Okay, we'll talk about that too. All right. Paul brings in nature itself as a witness to his instruction. This is based on his previous verse, which called out, Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Just as it was obvious to those in Corinth concerning that issue, so this one is obvious as well. His words about natural revelation are that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him. If one is a great traveler... They'll come to the conclusion that wherever he goes, in wherever, whatever culture he finds himself, it is normally rather easy to distinguish men from women. One doesn't travel to the heights of Tibet and find this to be untrue, nor does one travel to the deepest jungles of Africa and find it to be untrue. Men and women are usually easily distinguished between one another. And the general distinction is that of hair. If nothing else, hair will do it almost everywhere you go. How the hair is worn generally makes the first notable distinction between the sexes. Paul's observation based on nature is, again, if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him. 
The thought, however, needs to be taken and contemplated with extreme care, lest a discouraging line of legalism, like Temple Baptist Church, enter into one's theology. First, the natural question should be, what is to define long hair on men? Right? It's obvious he said long hair is a disgrace to a man. What is to define it? Is it more than a marine-style jarhead haircut? Is it more than one inch? Is hair on the collar a dishonor? What if hair goes back past the neck? What if, what if perish the thought the hair is found to touch the shoulders? Just what is the definition of long hair? It must be understood that the Bible never contradicts itself. However, the following people were Nazarites from birth, a consecration detailed in number six, and never cut their hair throughout their entire lives. Samson, okay? Samuel was consecrated to the Lord. He was not a Nazarite, but he was consecrated to the Lord from birth, so I included him in here, okay? And John the Baptist, all right? Amos 2.12 indicates there were other Nazarites in Israel, and even Paul took such a vow in Acts 18.18. 18. If some of these men of God never cut their hair and others didn't cut it for extended periods of time, then how can Paul's words be reconciled with hair that goes past the top of the ear, as so many legalistically-minded people seem to define long hair? Having long hair in and of itself cannot be a shame or a dishonor to a man because men of God were known to have had long hair. Therefore, this would be a contradiction in the Bible. Understanding this, it must be the appearance of the long hair which is dishonoring to his head. If a man looks like a woman, then he has passed from manliness to femininity. This in and of itself, then, would be dishonoring to him. It would then be in line with the precept found in Deuteronomy chapter 22, for example. Let me read you that very quickly. Deuteronomy 22 says, one page too many now. All right, let's see here. A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on women's garment, for all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. Okay, it would be in perfect line with that. Men and women, men are men and women are women. God intends for men to look like men and he intends for women to look like women. Further, the actions of the man are to be manly actions and the actions of a woman are to be feminine. These concepts are stated implicitly all the way throughout scripture. Therefore, it must be that Paul is referring to an appearance of femininity concerning long hair in this verse. If long hair causes a man to appear to be a female, then he has assumed an appearance which would place him in a point of subjection, as described in earlier verses of this passage. But man is to be under the headship of Christ, thus honoring him directly. If a man has a beard, no matter how long his hair is, he will certainly not be mistaken for a woman. However, if the long hair on a man becomes the primary point of identifying him as a female, then he has brought shame upon himself. Life application. Who decides in your church how long your hair can be? If someone is walking around with a ruler and checking length, he probably has more serious problems that should be watched. Legalism is a poison which can only bring about a congregation full of neurotic people. 
in all precepts, taking the time to think the issue through from a let scripture interpret scripture viewpoint will generally lead to healthy, happy congregations. 1115. Page. There you go. But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. That's it? Or, no, okay. The long hair is given to her as a covering. There's your answer. You just asked the question, and there it is right there. Here we go. As we can see from this verse, the many traditions of various sects or denominations which require bonnets or some other type of covering based on the thought in verse 5 have misinterpreted Paul's intent. They ran ahead without fi finishing the passage and properly applying his words. Rather, his intent was and is that a woman's hair is given for her covering. No bonnet or other headpiece is required as a sign of authority. Her covering is her long hair. It is a glory to her and to her husband. Therefore, if she does not have long hair as a symbol of her authority, then she should wear a covering. If she will do neither, then she has shamed her husband and should be shaven herself as a sh sign of shame. That's verse 6. Just as a Nazarite had long hair as a mark of separation to God, a woman should have long hair as a mark of submission to her husband. This again brings in an obvious question, though. Yes, what defines long hair on a woman? And a second question then arises. Who decides what the definition is. As no biblical advice is given on either of these two questions, two possibilities are, one, just as a man should not look feminine with long hair, a woman should not look masculine with short hair. That's why uh, lesbians like to say, I have a butch haircut, is because they're trying to look like a man. They're trying to look masculine. Two, the husband should be consulted in the wife's hair length so that he is not dishonored by her appearance. The husband is the head of the woman. I told my wife eons ago that I want my wife to have long hair. And she thankfully has kept it that way and she likes it. But if she didn't, I tell her, I don't want you cutting your hair because I like long hair. That was decided long before I was a Christian, okay? And she's been very faithful about that. She likes my beard. People don't like my beard. I have people say it all the time. There are times where she will fall asleep with her fingers in my beard, playing with it. Hasn't happened for a while, but, you know, that's because I go to bed early now. I'm so tired all the time. But I will tell you that she likes my beard. When she says, will you please cut your beard? I will come in here shaven that weekend, and you all can guess who is sitting there. I did that one time. I was at, uh, I had to get shaved for some reason when I was over at Temple Baptist, and I walked in, and nobody knew who I was. They had no idea until the girl looked, and I always wear two different colored socks when I was there, one green and one red. And she said, it's Charlie. He's got the different colored socks. Anyway, and that's because I was sailing. Red, right, return, right, you got you greens. Really. No, starboard and port. Yeah, so I... You mean you wore shoes? Yeah, I did at Temple Baptist. When I, when I wore shoes, I always... If you see me with shoes, I have red and green socks on. That's almost always. Very rarely will I not do that, but very rarely will I put on shoes. So, okay, um, so there we go with that. Uh, if these two requirements are met, talking about the woman not looking like a man and the husband being consulted, then the matter should be concluded. Let it go. Were there other references in the Bible concerning this, then greater restrictions or freedoms could be imposed, but none exist. Therefore, let the father or husband of the woman be pleased to determine what he feels is appropriate for the woman's hair length, her covering. That's that. 
Okay, now, the same people at that church that said my hair was too long never said anything about the women who had shorter hair than I did. Imagine that. Imagine that. Life application. Legalism is a poison which should be avoided at all costs. You've got the liberal attitude in churches where we're taking this verse out and that doesn't apply in this church. That is a poison. Just as harmful to a church as saying, we are going to take this precept and insert it into our Bible doctrine. They both are changing the word of God. Do not do it. Okay, the Bible gives details for proper conduct. Adding to them can only harm the congregation and lead down unhappy paths. Lord, you created woman for man. What a gift. And you ordained that they should be joined as one. When a man has a bride, his spirit, she does lift. And to him, she can add times that are fun. Together, they can walk the road of life, hand in hand, sharing in each joy and trial. Blessed is the man who has a good wife, who comes home to such a friend who can make him smile. Thank you, Lord, for the beauties around us, who grace us with joy and make our lives complete. And help us to do the same for our Lord Jesus, our husband and Lord, our precious Savior. So sweet. We have time for one more. Go ahead. Okay. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. From verse 2 until 16, Paul has been addressing the issue of hierarchy within the church, within creation, and what is proper concerning the covering of one's head. His argument has been with authority, and is, he has written it as if his statements were obvious. They are a given. And so because this is true, then there is nothing else left to fall back on which would be proper. What he has written is the only right and acceptable view concerning the matter. With that, he says, but if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Those who are contentious about the issue or disagree with his conclusions are left without any other acceptable custom or practice. This is how things should be. Modern scholars have tried to isolate this and other arguments made by Paul, saying they are merely cultural and applicable to the people in Corinth, but no longer apply to our modern and enlightened world. This is not the case at all. Two reasons for this are made known. One, his arguments not only covered the church, but they are understood from nature itself, as he said in uh, verses 7 and 12 today. In this verse, he says that there is no other custom to be found among either the apostles, we, or any other established churches, meaning the churches of God. The principle is to be universally applied, and only those who are contentious will stand against it. They are the very people that necessitated his letter in the first place. That's 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10 concerning divisions. Therefore, as this is in all the churches of God, it cannot be a cultural issue isolated only to Corinth, nor can this apply only at the time of Paul's writings. It is an authoritative doctrine for the church in all locations and for all time. Life application. It is tempting and easy to say that difficult issue in the epistle was merely a cultural or a temporary issue. However, when the context of the entire passage is carefully reviewed, it is discovered that this is generally not the case. The words of the apostles, especially Paul, are given to the church for all ages and in all times. We disregard them at the expense of proper doctrine and right living. All right. Is your daughter on the way? Is she going to come get you? or? 
Okay. All right. Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for the chance to come into your presence. And I would certainly pray that people would take these verses to heart and to study them themselves and to not be believing just what I've said. I certainly would not intentionally miss teach your word, but Lord, I am not always correct. I know that's true. And so I would ask that people would consider these things to check your word and to think on them and to read as many commentaries as possible to make sure that their doctrine is correct. But Lord, we do know that you have created things in a certain order and in a certain way to bring you glory. And so it is our hope, our desire, and our wish that we would bring glory to you in all ways and at all times. And once again, we lift up the people that were mentioned at the beginning of this uh, service including Mike, who I mentioned a little bit later, and please be with them during their uh, times of sickness or trial or pain or whatever is going on in their lives so that you would uh, be glorified through them as you continue to be with them through it. And Lord, we pray these things and we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 What's that? Yes, she is. No, that was uh, Hidako came in late today, so she she got the uh, she got the. Uh, okay, let me back this thing up here.